Our podcast is about a story about a town, a small town, and the people who live in the town. From a distance, it presents itself like so many other fandom podcasts all over the internet. Nerdy, white, male. Get closer though, and you start to see the silliness underneath. Hello, and welcome to River Do's and River Don'ts. It is normally a microcast where we talk about the River Do of the week, our favorite aspect of this week's episode of Riverdale, our River Don't, our least favorite aspect, and the weekly weird. The thing that keeps us mystified, perplexed, and generally weirded out by some of the strange tonal inconsistencies on display in this show. That's what we normally do. That's not what we're doing this week. This week we are tackling episode 13, which is, of course, chapter 13, The Sweet Hereafter. This episode was directed by Lee Toland Krieger and written by the showrunner, whose name I'm going to mangle yet again, but give me a second, I'm going to give it a shot. Roberto Aguirre Sacasa? Aguirre Sacasa, yeah. Aguirre Sacasa. See? I can't do it. Can't do it. Give I me, live in San Diego where everyone like, speaks Spanish, so. Give me, give me fucking, like some sort of like Danish or Norwegian name and I'll slay it, <laughs> but not this. In lieu of our normal format, and I mean, don't don't have a heart attack, guys. We're still gonna do River Do's, River Don'ts, and Weekly Weird. It's just that instead of this quick gloss of this week's plot, we are going to go beat by beat. We are digging deep in the style of many lovely show recap podcasts. So in this case, we're going to be telling a longer story about a story about a town. Indeed. So I've got my notes. Quinn, you've got your notes. I do indeed, Rob. So we begin this week's episode once again with the grisly tableau of Clifford Blossom having hanged himself in the maple syrup barn. And we get what is essentially a dual narrated voiceover info dump from Jughead and Alice Cooper detailing the fact that the Blossoms maple syrup thing was all good and stuff, but really they were smuggling heroin over from the Canadian border and distributing it stateside. Like you do. Jason Blossom was killed by his father because he found out about it and was not cool with inheriting that kind of a family business. So he was killed to ensure his silence. Just really wrapping up all that stuff that they need to get out of the way for this episode. Any lingering questions about the seasonal plot, they're just pushing right through. And it must be noted that Jughead does the thing that shows sometimes do where there's an inadequacy in the plot or some other aspect of the show and they try to lampshade it, but all they do is draw attention to it without becoming like kind of self-aware and funny. Yep. Because he's like, oh, but it's not like an Agatha Christie novel. It's much messier. And I'm like, you know what else is more messy than Agatha Christie? A voiceover info dump that tells all the parts of the story that you haven't managed for the first 12 episodes. Yep. You're just putting a ribbon on this and you're like, yeah, life is messy. Here's the cumbersome, like that whole plot and why things happened and like the reasons for everything that happened in the whole season yeah fuck that shit let's get that out of the way so that we can wallow around in some teen angst for almost an hour yep which you know oddly fitting in the riverdale milieu for that season finale mm-hmm. but i mean that's that's it basically that does more or less give you the who what where when why how 
of the whole Jason Blossom murder. Like we're we understand all of it now, mm-hmm. and we're <laughs> like thirty five seconds into the episode. Yep, and we do get some interesting parallel coffee shots. I didn't notice that. Oh yeah, Jughead and Alice are both drinking coffee, and oh good, it mirrors each other in some fun ways. I did notice a couple other aspects of surprisingly competent cinematography in this episode. So I think that, you know, props to Lee Tolan Krieger for doing more than need be done <laughs> in a show such as this, mm-hmm. uh, which is definitely how I felt about the pilot. Absolutely. So we move from this to a conversation with F.P. Jones, where he's laying out some of the realities of what's up with the Southside Serpents, what they're up to, what they do and don't do. And surprisingly, he says that this gang has nothing to do with hard drugs at all, but they will, like, cover up a murder. Like, what the hell kind of a gang are the Southside Serpents? They're the only, like, criminal syndicate that seems to be in town, aside from the Blossoms, who are doing more high-level stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say, they're the working-class criminals, because we're gonna get into some fucking class-divide stuff in this episode. Right, and we all know that working-class criminals stay away from hard drugs. It's only weed and covering up murders, and also delinquency. To be fair... I don't know how unilateral some of the decision-making was that led to Jason's murder, and we can't ask what's-his-name because he got conveniently hotel-murdered. Mustang? Yes, that guy. I don't know if it was like, hey, come over to our place to murder your son, or if that was something that Mustang did as a favor or got paid for or something like yeah i mean if you walk if you walk into your place of business your hangout space and there's a murdered teenager there and you're a gangster even if you didn't have anything to do with it you probably do hide it is what i'm is, is what i'm getting at absolutely especially if the sheriff's attitude towards you is as it is oh yeah because sheriff keller seems hot under the collar for fp to start naming names and giving him Southside Serpents to crucify, despite FB's continued protestations that, like, they just didn't do this. This isn't their thing. They're not involved. Mm-hmm. We then get to Fred Andrews, Angston in his kitchen, despairing over his misjudgment, his perceived misjudgment, anyway, of Riverdale's soul. Oh, yes. The big question of the episode, ostensibly. Really, yeah. And, I mean, that... To be worried about that thing is quite on point for his character, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I do think this is a good time to point out, though, that I feel like a lot of people are perseverating over what Riverdale's soul is. But what they really mean is Northside Riverdale. I would not include Fred in that list. I probably wouldn't include Fred in that list either, but it seems to be a recurrent theme. When people talk about Riverdale, they're talking about North of the Tracks. Well, and yeah, there's there's a couple of exceptions to that, Uh, Fred, Betty... And they're some of the people who I like the most in this episode. But Archie joins in on this, uh, you know, this uh, sort of heroic pity party because he's worried about his friends, which is, of course, on point for Archie. As long as we pretend episode 10 never happened, Archie's someone who really cares about his friends. That episode was a mistake. (laughs) Yes, it really was. It was so 
heavy-handed and so character-breaky and like, oh, look, Archie's just, ah, fuck it, we'll get drunk and then make all these bad decisions. I wondered if it wasn't like angling for government funding, trying to talk kids out of underage drinking. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I said that on the episode where we discussed that, but I like think that did. thought did occur to me that I was wondering if they were trying to do like those special episodes from the 90s. Mm-hmm. We then cut to a, you know, a very perfunctory, very brief reminder with veronica and hermione that hiram is coming back yep because gotta remind us all of that I just get this weird feeling that since this is the last episode and we haven't seen him yet that he's gonna be this thing in season two i don't know oh maybe maybe we get the coopers just performing normalcy pretending that they are a normal functional family together as betty explains to archie in a sequence of surprisingly well shot walking out in the snow i wonder if the actors are actually super freezing when they're shooting this or if the makeup and lighting are just amazing uh because they super look cold and flushed and like they are out in the actual cold yeah which that scene is odd to me because it's so obvious that they're not okay. And it's very weird that they're even trying, given what's happened in this season. Mm-hmm. We then get Veronica wanting to come clean to Betty about the whole her and Archie hooking up thing. Yes. But before she and Archie can make a decision about that, Archie and Betty are called to the principal's office to meet with the mayor. Oh, yes. Like you do. The mayor is very interested in using... Using is the right word, Archie and Betty, as squeaky clean symbols of heroism and virtue to show, you know, that Riverdale is a place worth saving and look at these good kids who have saved the town. On this, the 75th anniversary of its founding. Sure. This town built on the maple syrup industry, which I'm sure was booming in what is, by my estimation, the year of our Lord, 1941. (laughs) Yes. So she wants to just use them as kind of a symbol of simplified goodness to give a politically expedient narrative spin to the proceedings of the season of TV we've just watched. And Betty rightly brings up that Jughead is a better example, or at least an equally valid example of someone who saved the town, who figured out what was going on. He was absolutely instrumental in solving the Jason Blossom murder. And Wayne McCoy does this sort of painful forced smile thing and says that perhaps Jughead would be confusing as a symbol. And so he's invited to the Jubilee, but he can't speak there. Uh Uh-huh. Don't have a dad in prison. Hell, even just local jail. It's not clean enough for our image. Yeah, great. Betty refuses to do it, unless Jughead is also allowed to be up there, at least initially. The gang gets caught up on how McCoy is basically intent on having the serpents take the fall. This is when they're meeting at school. And they note that she has not even so much as said the name Clifford Blossom in public yet. Here she is using her clout as mayor to try to pressure the sheriff into shaking down FP for the names of minor street thugs to pillory. But the actual drug lord that they have just found to have both been a drug lord and murdered his own son is not currently being discussed. Because that's too complicated. Speaking of complicated, uh, despite what complicated feelings may exist, Betty insists that she's fine with Archie and Veronica because they finally managed to get that out to her. Right, because she has a jughead now. Indeed. 
And while I will not upset any of the Riverdale or Riverdoos and Riverdon'ts fan bases by casting a vote on which of those boys is a better boy to have, um, I think we can at least agree that n- neither one is a bad showing <laughs> if you are if you are in that town trying to date boys. Oh, absolutely. We get some heavy dialogue between Penelope Blossom and Cheryl out there in the syrup cellar about how... Penelope sometimes wonders if it wouldn't be better to be in the sweet hereafter than in this awful limbo. Title drop. Yup. Cause you gotta, especially in that season finale. Oh, very important. Yes. <laughs> she, she berates her daughter for crying about her dead dad because she hated she's him. like, oh well, you you hated him, so you shouldn't cry that he's gone. Maybe maybe suicide is better than living. Like mom of the year in a show full of fucking terrible parenting i will say that penelope manages to somehow be worse than alice cooper yes she gets the mario kart blue shell and takes it all the way to the top in this episode yep like luigi death stare right at alice yeah yeah it's real bad and it and it doesn't stop here. no it keeps getting worse <laughs> it just keeps getting fucking worse forever but yeah we'll, like we'll get there <laughs> Yeah, she just keeps screaming repression at her poor daughter, who has in yeah. six months lost both her brother and her father. And her cheerleading squad. Oh, God forbid. She did Again, formally still resign. Still don't know how the politics of that work, but okay. <laughs> she put in a formal resignation this time, at least. Indeed. Archie does the good guy thing, or a good guy thing, and checks in one-on-one to be 100% sure that Betty's feelings are okay, and that she's not hurt by him being with Veronica. And he clearly, Archie, clearly has some strange, unresolved, divided feelings about this whole thing. Yes, he does. Which, given that this is based on comics that I at least understand from my position of utter ignorance, hence me having a podcast with another friend of mine, comics that predicate very heavily on a love triangle between these three. A very long it makes sense. will they, won't they? <laughs> will they, won't they, who they? Yep. And yeah, Betty assures him that it's all cool. Which I'm sure it will be until season two. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the second rubber hits the road in season two, there's going to be a lot of confused kissing and gazing. (laughs) (laughs) We can only hope. I don't know why my lips do this. What is happening to me? (laughs) What have I become? Somebody help. Wait, wait. I mean, spoilers, but why are we kissing in the closet at Cheryl's house? (laughs) I thought this place burned down. Ugh. We'll get there. Right. So we get a scene at Andrew's construction where Hermione informs Fred that she and Hiram are willing to buy out the contract on the lot because it's going to be safer for everyone involved. And Fred, again pulling at this class tension subplot, basically tells her, if you put it in writing, I might consider it. With a pretty clear subtext of... Fuck you. I'm not going to make this easy for you. Oh, yeah, no. But part of the reason he's in that mood is because Hermione opens this business negotiation with her equal partner that she wants to buy out by by helpfully informing him that she's fired all of his workers for being in the Serpents. Oh, yeah, she, she fired you know, all of those criminals. Those guys who actually stood by him and, like, actually showed up and got the work done and persevered through all this adversity, they're from... They're from the wrong side of the tracks, and so I fired all of them without consulting you. Now can you please do me a favor? 
and we got new workers. I guess now that Clifford Blossom's dead, and there's just a vacancy in the local yeah, construction exactly. worker pool. <laughs> They've got a fresh hole to pull from. But again, as far as negotiating tactics go, I think she gave him those facts in the wrong order? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely, definitely putting your worst right foot forward. <laughs> I betrayed you. Now please help me out with this thing I need your help with. Right. Would you consider money? Hermione Lodge, perhaps not the brains of the Lodge industrial criminal enterprise. <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. The show seems confused on that at points. It's true. Is she really, really smart or not? Who knows? The writing's not consistent enough to tell. <laughs> Josie of Pussycat's fame informs Archie that they will not be playing the song that he wrote about this whole affair at the Jubilee because her mother, the mayor, has already approved only pre-sanitized music Yes, for the Jubilee. Correct. Uh, so we're just continuing this whole media spin, political talking point cancer that is eating at the heart of this episode. Mm-hmm. God damn, Mayor McCoy. God damn. Not your biggest fan either of us, I imagine. Nope. Speaking of main characters producing a piece of art or writing or something and being told that they can't use it in the way that they want, Betty has written up an article about the Jason Blossom murder and everything that's taken place. Mm -hmm. A segue there that was smooth as butter, by the way. Ah, yes. <laughs> Almost like they wrote it into the script intentionally as parallelism. Yeah. Betty definitely gets a classic compliment sandwich, <laughs> except that it's not really a compliment sandwich. It's more like, here's a compliment. It's very good. This is the best thing you've ever written. But also, I'm shutting this down right now. No questions. So it's not a compliment It's an open sandwich. face sandwich. It's, it's, it's a compliment it's a open piece face of, sandwich. It's a piece of bread on, on top of something garbage. <laughs> it's not an open face sandwich. The compliment went first. It's like there's a turd and you just lay well, a piece of bread over it. Isn't a compliment it. sandwich... The compliments of the bread, it's compliment, bad thing, compliment? I thought so. I thought that's how you did a compliment sandwich. Right. Do we not know what that term means? So then a... Right. So then if you're getting a compliment, which goes first, that's your base layer of bread. And then there's a oh, steaming pile of shit, okay, which makes that okay. an okay, open-faced so shit sandwich. You're going, you're, going from, you're going in construction order instead of the person eating the sandwich encountering it order, Correct. I guess. Yes. I was going from the point of view of the person who is, I guess, consuming the sandwich. I mean, this whole analogy hmm. breaks down, actually, because when you eat a sandwich, you bite through the whole thing, it, and then you I, chew that's it. Why At least that's how I, that's how I do sandwiches. Thing. Yeah. Actually, maybe maybe that makes sense, because, yeah, like, you don't, you don't experience a sandwich. Yeah, the whole analogy breaks down, because the person who experiences a sandwich in a distinct piece-by-piece -piece order is the person making the sandwich, right. not the person receiving like, the sandwich. At least a well-balanced sandwich. You're not going through and being like, hmm, this is good. And then you get halfway through and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> halfway through closing your teeth. Um, yeah, so like the, the point of view of the person making the sandwich versus the person eating the sandwich does not actually match in the metaphor to the person giving the compliments and criticisms and the person taking the compliments and criticisms. Correct. So I think what we've real I think the big takeaway from Riverdues and Riverdotes season 1 finale, regardless of what our actual Riverdues and Riverdotes are, is that compliment sandwich is actually not a very good metaphor. It's a very bad in fact. And I will say that when I looked up compliment sandwich to make sure that I wasn't completely insane, the top like Google result has a picture of Stewie from Family Guy and basically fuck Seth MacFarlane and everything he does 
and I like compliment sandwiches slightly less because I saw a picture of something he did. Yep. Do not like that. All right. No, no. Why would you? (laughs) Oh, God. We we went out of the weeds a little bit there, but that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Um, Caring too much about sandwiches is a Riverdale tradition. Hey! Hey The reason, though, that Alice is shutting this article down is because apparently there is legitimate vigilante violence going on. Yep. The South Side is a war zone. People are attacking perceived members of the serpents just kind of willy-nilly. Uh-huh. And she doesn't want her daughter to become a target, which is somewhat understandable, but holy shit, Riverdale! Yeah, yeah. But Betty does defy those desires and opts to publish this on the blue and gold, which we learn in a conversation that they transition to between Veronica and Betty, where Veronica immediately starts out by effusively complimenting the writing of that piece in a way that felt a little bit incredulous to me. <laughs> like, speaking of the last scene... Uh, yeah, yeah. This connects directly to that. Although between these two scenes, we do have another kind of sandwich, which is what I will sadly call a suicide sandwich. Ugh. Cheryl approaches Veronica and is surprisingly okay with losing the River Vixens and just just gives V her t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Her t-shirt. Her River Vixens shirt. And is just so calm and content with everything. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> yep. Uh, girls, red flags. Yeah. All the Guys, way down. come on. Uh, this is not a good sign. You know, suddenly being okay with everything despite everything in your life being horrible and giving away your prized personal possessions. Including not only your River Vixens t-shirt, but your prized spider brooch. Oh, but we'll get there. Indeed. So yes, and then of course, yeah, Veronica and Betty discuss the dark times in Riverdale and discuss the article. And Veronica's really pulling her weight as being incredibly meta here calling out the Bechdel test. Like, yes. they explicitly state, okay, so the real purpose of this scene is to talk about the Archie thing, but we need you all to know that the article was published without consent in the blue and gold, and we're doing this so that we can pass the Bechdel test in this episode. Haha, screw you, we got in under the wire. Booyah. Yeah, that and, yeah. Minimal I mean, Veronica effort. Veronica is also doing the good friend thing and checking on Betty's feelings. But, of course, it's Veronica, so we have to do it in a way that makes meta-references. Indeed. Because why not? I don't have much else to say about that scene, really. No, (laughs) it's just Veronica being Veronica. (laughs) Yep. Then we learn that when Archie and Jughead come home from school, there's a social worker there who's going to take Jughead away because... At least they didn't, like, explicitly make her look evil and slovenly... Yeah, um, I It's a hard, that. shitty job. It is, it is. And they don't get enough recognition. They're genuinely out there trying to help people. Of course, I imagine Riverdews and Riverdones is a fairly biased podcast when it comes to social and care workers, given history. My wife is a social worker and you I'm incredibly adjacent are a social and worker intent to, or, yeah. or very closely related, yeah. Um but because Fred had a DUI around the time of his separation from his wife. He is not a suitable guardian for Jughead anymore. And it's also implied that he's just too poor. That too. Like he doesn't actually have enough income right now. Right, there's the economic struggle with everything going on over at Andrew's construction. So 
They're going to send Jughead to the south side with a family they've worked with before, but that will mean that he's transferring school districts and will have to attend Southside High. A wild season two conflict point appears. Ooh. And Jughead seems to somewhat grimly accept his fate. Yeah, he's taking it in stride, even though he's obviously not happy about it. Yeah, the theme of this episode for Jughead is definitely grim resignation. Mm Mm-hmm. Archie visits FP in the town jail. Yeah. And finds that FP will not deal with McCoy and Keller, even to save his own son from the school transfer, because you don't betray the people who have stood by you. Correct. And the serpents are, in fact, innocent of this crime. And that's a line that he won't cross. And also, he believes in Jughead and that he'll survive. He'll do what he has to do and he'll make it. He believes in his son and his son's strength. And he asks Archie to look after him and he warns him that Jughead is going to try to pull away from his friends. And that there's some darkness in him and like his reaction to this adversity is going to be to try to disappear into himself. Yep. To turn to the dark side. And he wants Archie to not let him go down that path. And I feel like that is both some really amazing awareness of his son and self-awareness. Because, like, he's made all of Jughead's mistakes already. Right. Again, FP and Jughead know each other very well, even though their relationship is very strained. Yes, they have their demons. But they have a very intimate knowledge of each other. And they have a great deal of emotional clarity in their relationship. Mm -hmm. So in the second beat of Cheryl Blossom, like suicide awareness or lack thereof, suicide prevention or lack thereof, she apologizes to Jughead and just fucking gives him her iconic spider brooch. Which is not at all a gigantic warning sign. No, not at all. I will also say that before getting into the meat of this scene, my first note that I wrote down was Cheryl constantly violates the dress code. Oh, does she? She was like, I didn't even had a lot of exposed like belly skin. Oh, which in this we particular can scene, probably safely assume that American high school probably not so not so allowed. Yeah, because. Because girls' freedom to express themselves is less important than coddling the entitled lack of self-control and respect that boys have. God, it's awful. Fuck dress codes and fuck all this toxic masculine horseshit. Uh Anyway. Please. I will say that as massive suicide warning signs go, this one was very cute because she literally referred to it as my iconic spider brooch. Which is so on brand for her character to literally say it that way. Yep. The only other people who can pull that off with any degree of self-confidence and aplomb are Ubisoft. (laughs) Except when they say it, it's a lie. Yes. Cheryl Blossom's iconic (laughs) baseball cap. Which is just a thing that no one one knows or gives a fuck about. Yes. Uh, yeah, those deep cuts for you Jimquisition fans out there, because uh-huh. that's what I'm sure that the Riverdale Jimquisition <laughs> Venn diagram is enormous, is super overlapped, just tiny little crescents on the outside. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, she called it her iconic spider brooch and just gave away one of her prized possessions to a person she barely knows. And still, guys, come on. Again, 
the show's characters vacillate between an incredible level of emotional intelligence and acuity and being completely oblivious to obvious signs of impending suicide. Or just of other characters' feelings. Like, as... Let's get fucking drunk! Yeah, the oft-mentioned episode 10 debacle couldn't happen with consistent emotional intelligence from the characters. No, it really couldn't. I will say my next note says pig's blood question mark but it looks like in my note it says piss blood (laughs) that's a different show i think that's a metalocalypse probably yeah so yeah we move from this scene of cheryl ostensibly just crying for help again to everyone being corralled to betty's locker where something terrible has happened, where the pages of her expose have been plastered all over her locker. There is a little Betty doll with a little noose on it, and a threatening message has been written on it, slut-shaming her and identifying her as being sympathetic to the serpents. I have a question about this scene. Yes? Which is, who at the high school cares so much about this class warfare, largely the adults' level conflict in the show to write go to hell serpent slut on betty's locker in the blood of a pig i don't know and i also don't know how they identified that it was pig's blood like did they take it down to the lab (laughs) did they have to do csi to find that out or do they have one guy in town who's like oh no this this is consistent with pig's blood i've dealt with this a hundred times you're not gonna get this from a goat you're not going to get this from a rat. You're not going to get this from a human being. It's got to be pig's blood. Guarantee It's all it. about the viscosity. Yeah. It's... You know, it makes it makes it good for the writing on your basic paper stock, uh, especially threatening messages. You get just the right amount of run. So you get those kind of goosebumps type yeah, yeah, exactly. letters, but not illegible. It, it's going to maintain structural consistency, but it is, it is going to give you the spooky runs. Legible but sinister. That's what I always say. Exactly. If you've got a small, the fine mark of a finely chosen you know, animal maybe blood. with sable hair, get it in a point uh, zero, maybe a double zero size. You could even uh, write a hostage note or something with that if you wanted to dedicate the time. But if you got one of those big old Tom Sawyer style paintbrushes, great for writing something like "Go to Hell, Serpent Slut" on a couple of newspapers. Case closed. Just as a for instance, you know, not just a random example off the top of my dome. Right, yeah, just speaking hypothetically. I was going to say maybe they just found the dead pig later, but... uh, Certainly they don't... Perhaps a little macabre. Call attention to that answer. No, no, just, yeah, anyway. (laughs) That's what happens. Archie sort of checks in with Fred and more or less just expresses his seething frustration that... These forces at work in the town are, in his words, kicking their asses, and that things just keep getting worse. And man, does he just look like someone who wishes there was someone or something to punch. Yeah. So we get that quick little sequel, intercalary little bit. Mm-hmm. Is this where Jughead and Betty have a conversation? It is. Where Jughead informs us that, quote, the entire multiverse wants him on the south side? That is what he says, yes. Again, Jughead, and I know teenagers just have a tendency to do this, like, it's a solid thing, but he is self-mythologizing the hell out of this thing. Yeah. I believe that the term in developmental psychology is a personal fable? Maybe so. It's been a while. Call me out, developmental psychologists. (laughs) Yes. At us. Go ahead. It seems as though he's magnifying 
or yeah, mythologizing the forces moving against him to make himself feel better about his submission to his fate. Right. They are too grand for him to rail against, and therefore it is noble to submit. And it's exactly what FP said was going to happen. Yep. He's trying to pull away from those closest to him because things aren't going great for him, and Betty's not having it. (laughs) Nope. She doesn't give a shit if you're scared of being loved. She insists that Jughead belongs in Riverdale just as much as anyone else. And fuck the haters. Right. But I do also want to call attention to this point right here, where there is the unspoken assumption that Southside isn't Riverdale. Yeah. But god damn it, it's the south side of Riverdale. The south side of Chicago yeah, is still the is. south side of Chicago. Like, it's Chicago, and the south side is Riverdale. So, get it together, people. <laughs> Don't be so scared of poverty. Uh, Hermione... We then get asking Veronica, basically just asking her to manipulate Archie into manipulating Fred In the into most, accepting the Lodge's deal. It's so bald-faced. And then Veronica being so blatantly sarcastic and Hermione doesn't fucking pick it up. She's like, well, as no, long as you're just, in charge. She's just, yeah, that sounds good to me because I'm gross and awful. Remember when I seemed like a good parent? <laughs> yeah, that was... They had this whole thing early in the season where she would be a very good parent and then a questionable parent and then a very good parent. Like, they're, it seems they're done with that now. Oh, she's just full on in Team Hiram now. I guess once she, like, resigned to the fact that he's coming back, she she's just cashing the checks at this point. She's not there for the job. Yeah. Veronica reminds her mother that Fred has literally been the only person who stood up for her and the only person who's been loyal to her, but what Yep. My notes say Fred called out as the one good person. Like, he, yeah. as we've said several times Correct. on the show, he's the one dependable adult. He's the one person who's consistent and makes sense and, like, seems to have a good bone in his body. Although, at this point, I would argue that FP is also, in certain ways... Mm, He's sympathetic. He's not a good dad, but he is sympathetic in a way that few other adult characters are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because, yeah, he's a bad father because of his addiction. He doesn't love his addiction. He's trying to fight it. It's very hard. And the fucking town is shitting all over him. But he's a, like, again, bad dad because he's an addict trying to work on it. He's not just an evil asshole like most of the adults. Go sexually manipulate that boy for me. Go on. Or why don't you just kill yourself, daughter? <laughs> yes. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that he is flawed but sympathetic, and Fred is definitely the paladin. Yeah. Then we go back to the Coopers, and Alice is furious oh boy, with Betty for publishing that article because Polly essentially told Alice everything that happened. Ari, the pig's blood. They get into a big fight. Betty asks for Alice to come clean on so many of the things that she's been hiding for so long, so many of the things she's been defensive about that FP has called her out on, and they essentially storm away, and then Alice comes to see Betty in her room and tells her that, much as with Polly at homecoming um, when they were in high school, she told Hal, I believe is his name, I'm forgetting his name already. It is. It's Hal. Okay. That's also the name of the dad and Malcolm in the middle, and so I wanted to be sure that I wasn't mentally supplanting that Casting man for Brian Cranston. Casting aspersions on Brian Cranston. Um, <laughs> you know, he seems like he wears tidy whities That's all I'm saying. Walter White could be in Riverdale. I mean, there's drug trafficking and a lot of alliterative names. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw him at some point. It's close enough, but they had a disagreement. Hiram and Heisenberg. Oh, God. 
Criminal Gentleman. That's season two, right? Yes, Criminal Gentleman. There was a disagreement on how to handle Alice's pregnancy at that point. And she was sent away to the Sisters of Mercy. She was there for like five months, had that baby, and it was put up for adoption. It was a baby boy. Definitely not. He has a secret brother. Yeah, I'm sure that secret brother has nothing to do with season two. No, I'm sure not. Also, you know, it's kind of cool. Like, he's probably going to fill out that quotient because they made Kevin Brunette in this and we're finally going to have a pretty blonde boy. That is true. A blonde Adonis is how Veronica refers to Yeah, which to Veronica actually brother. literally points out. Um, it's important to note, I think we just have to come to terms with the fact that Hal, like, for Hal Cooper, forcing people to have abortions is his fetish. Something like that. I mean, he is like, certainly not- He has a fucking problem. He's not here for the autonomy of women's bodies. If You know, if you're constantly going to pressure the women in your life to abort- I don't know, especially like, okay, (laughs) if you are absolutely certain that you don't want your significant other getting pregnant or keeping a pregnancy going, and you will not allow that person to have a say in it, use some fucking condoms, you knob. Yep. Also, maybe just be a good person, but that's probably too much to ask. Uh Definitely too much to ask. Speaking of just being terrible people, uh, sandwiched between these two scenes involving the Coopers is a quick scene between Penelope and Cheryl, where Cheryl is at the top of the stairs being a raw, exposed nerve of emotional vulnerability. But dressed in the extravagant manner that is required at Thornhill, even for pajamas. Begging mommy to let her stay home from school because it's so hard right now. Penelope refuses and says, I don't care. Yep. Just a hard no. Because, God, she just needs to be the worst parent. Ugh. I mean, at this point, she's just lapping everyone. Oh, yeah. And to return to our extended Mario Kart yes, reference. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. She's done one of those things where you, like, use a boost over a certain thing to hop a wall at a weird angle. Skip half the course. Yeah, she's using speedrunner tactics now. Yeah, she is. She is at bad parenting. But yes, we do get the aforementioned discussion of the fact that there is some blonde Adonis out there. Uh, And then we get a phone call from Jughead. Oh, yeah, because he's at Southside High, where they've got metal detectors at the entrance to let you know that it's on the bad part of town. Yes, from (laughs) Jughead calls Betty from the high school featured in the feature film Lean on Me, (laughs) starring Morgan Freeman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, and featuring the I music stylings of Guns and there Roses. There's a teacher here who's trying to reach these kids. Yes, trying so hard to reach these kids. <laughs> okay, we're mixing movies now, but you guys get it. Like it is horrendously stereotypical. I will say though, on the plus side, it's been pretty established that the poverty in Riverdale is white poverty. So at least he's not going to a school on the wrong side of the tracks where the predominant class of people there are not only poor, but also minorities. I mean, or we could just say that Riverdale's casting is not inclusive enough, and that's actually why. It could be. It could be. Who knows? But I certainly hope that it is them, at least not casting all poverty as being a problem of non-white people. Yeah. I mean, of course, the, the correlation in real life exists because... Our society has systematically fucked over. Oh yes, yeah. systemic racism. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it's not a problem of minorities. It is a problem that minorities have foisted upon them. Correct. But yeah. We go into a montage because we find out that Jughead is at that high school, and that's a fucking emergency, you guys. So we get the weirdest goddamn montage I've seen in my life. Slow running, bed flopping. We get this hilarious, awkward Phoebe from Friends running from the gang, intercut with this harrowing sequence of Cheryl preparing for her suicide. Yeah, bringing out the dress that she lost Jason in. It's bad. It's really bad, actually. The tonal tonal disparity. Which we've established is how they do montages in this show. But it's otherworldly. They they pushed the needle so far up that gauge that it broke. Correct. It felt in bad taste. It, It was... It was surreal to behold, and watching it the second time didn't help it be less weird. (laughs) No, it was bad. We then get Jughead instantaneously and thoroughly ingratiating himself to the tough crowd, the rough clientele at Southside High. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's got them laughing. Which I fucking love. It's a rollicking good time (laughs) over the cafeteria at Southside High. Like, goddamn, Jughead. It It was very good. It was very I love good. that it's framed like, oh god, he's going to this miserable fucking hellhole. His life is terrible now, and like he's instantly in his element. The and king liked. of the cafeteria, yeah. Like, oh wait, maybe, <laughs> maybe, like, maybe the rich part of Riverdale's just really fucking stuck up, you guys. Right, because they go from what appears to be a kid intimidatingly eating one of his french fries like he's a power play. To he's got everyone circled around him fucking yucking it up. Yeah. Like Jughead's chuckle hut has opened. It's true. It's open for business, baby. <laughs> Yee-hoo. It's great. Um, it's fucking awesome. It's so good. And outside of the high school, when he, you know, goes to tell his friends essentially that, like, no, I'm really gonna be fine, we get another weird beat of Archie indecision over the whole pairing off of the main characters thing. Oh, yeah, his longing look over at Jughead and Betty. But before we can resolve that, we are again interrupted by Cheryl's suicide text. Yep. Veronica. Thanks for trying. I'm going to be with Jason now. So the gang rushes directly to Sweetwater River, Mm -hmm. which they can easily determine is what she meant. Fortunately, they happen to enter the part of Sweetwater River where Cheryl also decided to go. Like, thank goodness for that. Yeah, let's just ignore that uh because this next stuff is very dramatic oh i don't necessarily think that it's a bad contrivance um there are some bad contrivances but i was willing to accept this one actually yeah it is possible that there's an in-universe explanation based on like there's enough information they could have yeah maybe she had to sort of like say where when she was testifying and stuff maybe it became known exactly where jason was supposedly this didn't feel incredulous to me there's plenty in this episode that did but this particular thing didn't And it also could have been that the tension was pulling me through fine, but I don't feel weird about that. But the gang gets there as she's still trying to break through the ice to die. And honestly, it looks like maybe she could have been talked down because she looks genuinely happily surprised that anyone came to try to talk her out of it. Yeah. Like when she saw all those people, she looked for a moment like really relieved. And she stands up and turns around to face them. Even. Yes, but the ice breaks. At which point we are introduced quite rapidly to Archie Andrews' ice puncher. <laughs> yes, Archie finally has something to punch. 
and punch, he fucking does. She is caught in the river flow, so they clear off the snow sitting on top of the ice, find where she's floated to, and Archie just starts punching the hell out of this block of ice. I mean, Archie Andrews one, river zero. Oh yeah, I mean, it messes his arm up. It gets him some bad cuts. And yeah, you see and I was water and ice and blood all mixing together. Just a gratuitous, like ooey gooey shot. Like it's like, oh, this is very like artistic looking. Oh, it definitely is. It looks like something out of Fargo. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and we and like I had a note written down at this point that oh, that hand is bork. Oh yeah, I mean, and that hand is done. They definitely show him in some casts, like they yes. Yes, no, they acknowledge that. That was a lot of ice punching up. he was doing. Yes. Cheryl appears to experience last-minute suicide regret in the form of a vision of zombie Jason Blossom sinisterly reaching out for her. Yeah, Um. I am going to say, and this might be because I literally just finished watching through the end of the Naruto anime. Watched it a lot when I was younger and fell off the wagon a couple years back, but like shortly before it ended. Finish that up right now. Yeah, because it sucks. It got a little heavy-handed and a little bit overcomplicated, but uh, Jason... Yeah, we'll talk about Naruto off the yeah. mics because that's a long conversation. It's a long, long that's conversation. Very pointless. It's, yeah. Um, suffice it to say, it managed to execute on its premise for longer than Bleach did, but that's not saying well, a lot. Yeah, so did everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but the way that Jason reaches out toward Cheryl in that moment looks almost exactly like the way that Itachi reaches out towards Sasuke. It was the same two fingers forward. connection. Like two fingers forward pointed out. Someone in the camera crew was having a laugh. They might have been. It felt very, very similar to that. Could be just an incidental thing, but I saw some parallels there that were surprising to me. Anyway, we then get Archie lifting Cheryl out and heroically carrying her away with his bleeding hand Mm -hmm. and everyone following along crying for help. And I'm going to say that this, this shit as dumb as the punching the ice was like, this all worked for me. Yeah. I like that scene a lot. It was very good. It was super visceral. Like it was, it was visceral. It was thrilling. Like the weight of Cheryl's intent Mm -hmm. was there. And like, the acting carried it through, yeah. like especially in the aftermath, the wordless carrying her away. Like you could see that everyone has just dealt with a very traumatizing event. Yeah, this isn't going to be shaken off easily. I will say at this point that one huge mistake does get made here, which is they don't seek professional help. Or if they do, it's off screen. Uh, but it looks it looks like they just take her right to. Uh, well, and based with the follow-through toward the end of the episode, it certainly seems as though... Yeah, because, I mean, both Archie and Cheryl definitely need to go see a doctor now, especially Cheryl. Yes. But, I mean, like, we saw how much blood there was. We saw how hard he was hitting that ice. He needs to go to a doctor, too. Yeah, absolutely. And he does especially seem to go to the doctor. Especially as a fucking musician. By the time <laughs> he's out on stage, he does have a wrapped hand. Yes, he does. He has a cast. He has a cast, so... He does end up going to the doctor. But yeah, we cut right into the Pembroke where Veronica is giving Cheryl a hot chocolate with a splash of peppermint, peppermint liqueur, liqueur which, which I now want. Uh, it sounds good, but This also, instant, now. <laughs> I mean, it's like 85 degrees in San Diego. Well, yeah, I mean, you made that choice, sort of. I know, I wish, being, 
climate change, y'all. It fucking sucks. Yeah, well, uh, it sucks until we all die. Like, now it's just in a race with the uh, Yellowstone, or, or I think it's the Yellowstone supervolcano. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, anyway, yeah. Anyway, the way okay. that Veronica communicates that there was a splash of peppermint liqueur felt less like you need this to help, like, warm you up and put some fire in your belly or whatever it feels a little more like but let's be bad (laughs) which honestly could be a sneaky good move on her part because she is reestablishing some normalcy in their friendship that's true I i was i was with veronica on that oh i was too and it's so veronica to just get into that attitude immediately once once you can mm-hmm. i mean it is a good way to i suppose develop rapport especially with someone like cheryl yeah yeah i mean that's kind of how they related but, um but then hermione, hermione busts in. makes sure just makes absolutely 100 percent triple check sure that cheryl knows she's not actually welcome thanks herm you're the best <sighs> <sighs> it's bad i hate it is there just a thing that happens when adolescence ends in Riverdale where your soul is taken or at least injected with some sort of like thornily branching black fluid? I don't know. That they just forgot to do to Fred? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, we actually also get a little follow-up on the building theme in this episode of perhaps Alice being done being quite so fucking horrible. Like we we get her acting like a supportive mom to Betty. Oh, yeah. Without any strings attached. She's not asking for anything. Mm -hmm. She's not trying to trick her into something. Right. Which I thought was, you know, a a sign of change. Good job. Archie then insists that he can play the guitar just fine with his shattered hand. Thank you very much. I mean, he's not going up there to do something by Malmsteen or anything. (laughs) And Veronica brings up the third beat of the Archie and Betty indecision thing, which I thought was very masterful that they managed to do this as a three beat where they got stopped two times in a row from really resolving it. Mm -hmm. Archie insists that his wistfulness while looking over at Jughead and Betty was hope that he can be that perfect for Veronica. And I super don't know if I buy that. Perhaps he could be her soulmate. I super don't know if I buy that. I, I find it more likely that Archie thinks that's what it was than that that actually was I mean, what it was. I've said it, like, I don't buy a lot of the romance in this show. Honestly, Val and Archie worked for me, but then as soon as they were together, it fell apart. Yes, the show was no longer interesting. Right, so, you know, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I'm inclined to believe that he doesn't feel that 100%. Or maybe that is what he wants, but simultaneously, maybe he doesn't want it I mean, it with it's Veronica. obvious that he's too dumb to actually know how he feels. Oh, yeah. That's like the whole show that's the b plots of everything archie's a goob (laughs) yes he's a big dumb pretty guy we find out that josie having found out that archie saved cheryl is stealthing in archie's song at the jubilee and mayor be damned yep so we see them make that performance and val is very conspicuously confined to the opposite side of the stage from everyone else who's performing i will say that i wanted to make a note at this point to point out that Val is a fucking professional. Yes, she is. Because she seems legitimately happy to perform and not bitter. Even though this is a dude who is a bad boyfriend to her. Like, he saved a friend of her friend. And she's okay with supporting that. 
and she doesn't make a scene and it doesn't seem at all bitter or angsty. And I was like, way to go, Val. Like, she does seem... You're, you're better than most of these people. Yes, but she does also seem to rocket off the stage faster than literally anyone else. Maybe that is true. You can see her bolting <laughs> so... off stage like she blurs through the frame. I mean, I, I would too. Yeah, but she is still a consummate professional. Yes, well done. And then <sighs> Betty gets to make her speech. We we have this brief interlude of Jughead visiting his dad and just telling his dad that he's going to be okay. And FP shows some just sort of tear-jerking vulnerability and remorse for the bad things he's done in his life. He's like, even though I'm mostly innocent of this stuff, like I'm not a good person and I fucked up. And he's sorry because of what it means for his son. And he then asks Jughead to be sure that he's there for his mom and little sister, recognizing that they might not think that they need him right now, but he still needs to be ready. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. The, these two characters are so good and so good together. Mm-hmm. Really, they they steal it every time they're on Every together. time. Yeah. Um, I feel like their drama just works mm-hmm. so much more consistently than many other characters drama but as you're saying now we get we cut back immediately to the jubilee and betty's speech yeah and betty makes her speech which is more or less a condemnation of the people in the room the way that they want to look for easy answers and the way that they don't want to accept that riverdale is a place that has texture and flaws that FP is just as much a part of Riverdale as are the Blossoms, as are the Andrewses or the Coopers. Um, <laughs> the residents of half of the town. <laughs> right. The southern half. Yep. So she definitely calls them out for drawing those lines in the way that they have. Yeah, she rightly points out that Jughead was super important in solving the murder and basically says, fuck y'all for choosing comfort over truth. And that's what's killing Riverdale, folks. Yep. We have to do better. So good job, Betty. Jughead starts the clapping, and then everyone joins in, and I know that I'm a sucker for it, but it legitimately worked for me when Alice stood up and gave a standing ovation to her daughter Uh for doing what she was trying to stop her from doing earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. We then, after careful consideration, get Fred's response to the offer (laughs) that the Lodges gave him to sell out his business. (laughs) Because he is a fucking working class folk hero. Yep. He basically just tells them to eat his ass. Yeah. He says, so yeah, I'll see you at work, partner. And then V gives her mom the world's best, yeah, what, look. (laughs) And I fucking can't stand how good it is. It's really good. (sighs) We then go to Pops where we basically get the Riverdale equivalent of the Star Wars Episode Four medal ceremony, except we don't even do a racism and not give Chewie a medal. <laughs> that is true. Um, many milkshakes were had, says the narration, and it's from this that we, I believe, go back to Thornhill with Cheryl. We sure do. Where Penelope enters and asks, what's that smell? And Cheryl lets her know that it's gasoline. And then immediately proceeds to burn down the house. Penelope comes home, mind you, apparently unaware of the fact that her own daughter has attempted to kill herself. So it would seem, yes. And you know what? Get it, Cheryl. 
burn that fucking house down. Yes, but also please seek professional help you need it. Indeed. Absolutely. Well, that was already well established. Absolutely. But I don't feel sorry for Penelope getting her house burned down. Oh, no, down. I Bitch don't. I, I'm also on board for that. Like, fuck you, Penelope. We get this astonishing main character couple's bone zone montage. Oh, yeah. Jughead says I love you, and then we get a double teen sex scene. And it's to that one song from the Murder on the Orient Express trailer. I don't know what it's called, but I've heard it a zillion times on I TV. I think it's by Imagine Dragons. Sure. It doesn't sound like it's not by Imagine Dragons. <laughs> yeah, popular music. Um, and we get this intercut of the two main couples starting to go at it, and Cheryl looking on in, like, supervillain ecstasy at the burning mansion as her mother rages at her and she can't even be bothered to flinch. Yep. But we do get one <laughs> bit of a burger block for Jughead. That is correct. There's a knockin' on that trailer door. Which was probably rockin'. Party foul, you guys. It was. Jughead immediately assumes it must be Alice Cooper, but surprise, surprise, it's about 20 Southside Serpents. <laughs> and a doggy. And a dog, yeah. Who let him know that they know that FP could have sold them out, but he didn't, so they've got his back. And they hand him a serpent's jacket. And... They masterfully did this where the music had dropped down to a very low volume and a quieter part of the song. And then <laughs> this awesome dramatic shot of Jughead throwing that jacket on and the music kicks back in. And I came a little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was very good is the thing. It was the ballinest thing I've seen in my life. He's like, yeah, Betty, what? And... I just have to point out that the Southside Serpents have a sheepdog named Hot Dog, and I love it. Uh-huh. But then we get the morning after, where Archie is putting on his clothes. Veronica wakes, makes a joke about him leaving without saying goodbye, and we find out that he needs to go to Pops's for breakfast with his dad, because that's what always happens when they need to have a serious conversation. Mm-hmm. So Archie shows up, smiling like to wash a fucking his hands. idiot the whole time. Yes. He needs to wash his hands, though. He does. So he's and washing we get his hands. This, him smiling at himself in the mirror yep. in this way that just proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that something horrible is about to happen. <laughs> because between that smile in the mirror from our angsty, angsty boy and the remaining runtime of like a minute and a half, uh -huh. oh boy, gird your loins. Yeah, there's a robbing. You hear the shouting, asking where the money is. Archie steps Just out. Just standing up there on that counter with a gun to Pops' uh -huh. head. Uh-huh. Archie steps out, sees that the gun has been turned to Fred. And Fred, I think, sort of gives Archie the don't-do-it look and intervenes himself to keep the gunman's attention away from his son. Mm -hmm. Who then shoots him. Well, I mean, Archie impulsively moves. Yes. He, he tries to get the in the way. And the gun goes off. And we get a very foreboding narration from Jughead about how this was the moment that Riverdale's soul died and that everything turned to darkness. We see Fred Andrews bleeding extremely heavily on the ground and Archie sitting over him looking traumatized. completely traumatized and lost. And that's the fucking end of the season, That folks. is. That is the end of it. Holy shit. Holy shit. What a trip that episode was. Uh-huh. River do's and river don'ts.
Indeed. I have to say, I have to say that the runner-up Riverdue for this week from me was the part of the episode I had the strongest and most acute reaction to, but on moral grounds, I cannot allow it to be my Riverdue proper, because this episode opens on the best worst pun that I have ever experienced in a piece of media in my life. (laughs) We open on Cliff Blossom having hanged himself, and Jughead's narration says, it was the ultimate cliffhanger. Yep. God damn it. That would have been an amazing pun if it hadn't been for the fact that that was a plot-wise cliffhanger as well. That was just the cherry on top. That was the, that's the vilest pun I've ever heard. It's so amazing. It, God, it was next level. Truly. So, that's a runner-up. I couldn't believe my ears. I, like, rewatched that, that second a zillion times. But it can't be my Riverdue for real because that would be dignifying punnery on a level uh, unbecoming, I think. As much as I love it. My legitimate Riverdue for this, the final episode of season one, is the emerging theme of the town leadership and town elites preference for easy to swallow lies over complicated truth uh, and this battle for the soul of Riverdale coming to the fore and the idea of how people in power spread expedient narratives to further their own agendas. That is a shockingly nuanced theme for a fucking CW teen trash makey outy show. Oh, yes, it absolutely is. I was amazed that they went there and that it wasn't just like a cool thing that the writer snuck into one scene. Like, the episode was fucking about that. It was. It really was, actually. It was very, very good. I was super pleasantly surprised by that entire thematic through line for the episode. And, I mean, it feels like they're trying to do that as, like, a big thing for season two as well, which in that, if that's true, I am here for it. Oh, yeah. That would be very, very engaging. My Riverdue is actually, there was a lot of good stuff in this episode, and I'm glad that that, like, thematic piece is what you came forward with, because mine is actually probably even though there was some ridiculous stuff in the scene itself the execution and the way they built tension around the scene of cheryl's attempted suicide was like really really good like it really was as a piece of effective storytelling and usage of the medium it resonated well they managed to build parallels to things that had gone on in the plot before they managed to externalize internal conflicts it was beautiful in a way Very that they have not always been able to pull off in this show. No. Uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, like, honestly has a lot on the ball as a screenwriter. Maybe even more evident in this finale than in the pilot and, and uh, second episode. Indeed. Another runner-up that I forgot to mention, but of course, the fucking Jughead putting on the serpent's jacket. Of course, <laughs> that's a runner-up. Like, I was... God fucking amazing then to river don'ts mine is my notes just say help cheryl i'm really really (laughs) frustrated with the fact that she didn't get the assistance that she clearly needed in that time following her suicide attempt or leading up to it people really dropped the ball and i'm glad that veronica was there for her in the immediate aftermath 
but she needed to be in a safe place where she wouldn't do anything else potentially rash or so that she could process what was going on and instead she burned down her house yeah i mean the drama all worked very well but no one helped her properly aside from the moment of actual rescue exactly fair enough my river don't runner-up i'll have to say is just the clumsy ham-fisted info dump at the beginning of the episode oh that was very bad i i appreciate its effects there was room for what this episode needed to be but that shouldn't have been in this episode because they should have been able to handle that in the 12 previous episodes yeah that kind of sucked it was it was like you start this episode off with a bad taste in your mouth which honestly makes the fact that it's still so enjoyable even more impressive but structurally that was bad but the actual Riverdone, it's kind of hard to choose because a lot of it was just good. You mentioned an important one. But what's left on my list is just, why the fuck is Hal still in the Cooper family? Alice seems like a strong enough character to kick his ass to the curb, mm-hmm. as she did earlier in the season. Yeah, I don't know why she walked back on and, that. And this revelation about how he treated her originally and the lost son makes it even more inexplicable why she ever took him back. I don't know. I mean, I feel like Hal as a character outside of his furtherance of some plot conflicts is fucking dead on arrival anyway. Oh, he's a milk toast, white guilt piece of shit. And I just don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how it's in character for him to be involved in that family anymore. Like, I don't understand why, Alice isn't, like, burning him alive in his car or something. Um, so that's probably my river don't, to be honest. That's fair. Weekly weird. We're going to get into what really, really weirded us out about this. Mine's a really weird choice, but it just, it really struck me when I saw it. The huge emotional vulnerability and availability that Jughead shows to Betty when he tells her that he loves her. Um, I'm there for it. I think it's... I think it's earned mostly. The weirdness of it to me is looking forward. It's very difficult to look at this episode and the state that these characters' relationships are in right now and understand how they're going to keep doing love triangle things without making people fucking horrible. And I guess I'm just looking at it both confused and a little apprehensive that, like, are they going to make characters horrible? Or are they going to break characters to make I mean, romantic drama happen the again? The show has a track record. Obviously, I feel like the Southside Serpents thing is going to come into it, but I didn't find that many things in this episode actively perplexing. But looking forward based on that, I feel like it's going to be super weird to get the show into that essential will-they-won't-they zone that defines these characters in many ways. Absolutely. I feel like they, I guess, overall, this season, I'm way super surprised at how, now, as much as I thought that Jughead and Betty's relationship began out of nowhere, they put that relationship through a lot of adversity and it grew stronger and stronger and stronger. And, like, that's not what I would have guessed would have happened. Right. The state of these relationships is not as I would have imagined it to have landed at the end of the season. So that's my weekly weird. I agree. I think that the Southside Serpents thing is probably going to be the crux of it. It seemed like Betty had a lot of apprehension around that in the first place. So How about you? My weekly weird involved me actually having to sit down and do some math. And that was around (gasps) Uh the age of the town doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) How is Riverdale only 75 years old? 
It doesn't it feel really doesn't like with the history they've all, established and like the thrust of the economy. There are old money families that have built mansions here. And 1941 was the cusp of World War One or World War Two, rather. Yeah, for the U.S. It was just right about there. Yep. So the majority of jobs were about to go into things like manufacturing with largely women taking on those roles because men were being shipped off to war like just by the bushel it wasn't a time for people to go off into the corners of the fucking woods and found a town yeah i think they really just kind of like forgot to carry a zero it's gotta be like somewhere like they that that's not the actual age of the town it can't be. that's the fucking number of jubilees they've held the town was already like 70 years old when they started doing the jubilee it's that's the only way gotta i gotta be it. like because i could see in like the 1800s at some point yeah a maple town being like a thing yeah your weekly word's better than mine that doesn't make it any doesn't make sense. any goddamn sense at all fortunately that doesn't affect the quality of the episode much no it doesn't it's just a little little head scratcher similar to mine uh i think i think that's the sign of a good episode that uh some of our lack of understanding comes from things that are so inconsequential absolutely but that was season one of riverdale yep it sure was in sort of celebration i guess recognition of this strange maple syrup soaked journey that we've taken thought it might be nice to share some general thoughts on the show thus far and kind of talk over who have who have emerged as our favorite characters in riverdale i like that and for me it's two clear front runners and one of them struck me hard from the start those being veronica and jughead veronica immediately left a very strong impression she has juggled this weird sense of awareness of the medium. Yeah, she's a Deadpool. Yeah, the Sorkin pool aspects of her are fascinating. But yeah, Sorkin pool, that's right. So are all of the other trappings of her character, and she's kind of a badass. And Jughead was a little bit slow to warm up to. Personally, I love Cole Sprouse in his take on this role. That was really, really good. But... For his characterization to really, like, get revved up took three or four episodes to sure. get his thing clicking. But once it did... And I will I will say, uh, for that generation of characters, the best dramatic acting in the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or at least the most, the most virtuoso that we see the most of, mm-hmm. for sure. I guess, like, an ancillary shout-out then to FP, because he plays so well off the dang kid. And yeah. that has created yeah. some of the best moments of the season. What about you, Rob? My favorite, my favorite character list is far more crowded than yours. <laughs> oh, okay. I was um, just going for like highlights. Yeah, yeah. Well, me too. There's, it's a scrum for like okay. the top couple positions for me. Um, I think that it can safely be said that Jughead wins best character as voted by our podcast because he is also in contention in hot contention for my very favorite character for many of the reasons we've already discussed and that's even accepting that he has some really weird outsider complex stuff that grates on me pretty hard yeah but i mean it's a realistic flaw for him to have it is like a lot of a lot of like you know offbeat smart kids get shitty in that way i was that kid oh i was too and that's probably why i hate him yeah yeah i mean it it's uncomfortable but it should be yep (laughs) um there is i think if i had to choose he's probably my favorite but the thing is the other characters who i like the most have so much less screen time than him that it's hard to make like an objective judgment 
I love FP almost as much as Jughead. Mm-hmm. So he's another pretty pretty high scoring character yes. for the podcast. He plays the hell out of a, being a broken man mm-hmm. who really wants to be good and is so plagued by his demons that he keeps failing, but he fucking keeps trying and he doesn't forget what his principles are. He just fucks up and he feels bad about it and he tries again and he fucks up again. Mm-hmm. And the generally sympathetic person who is prey to some serious vices that fuck up his life and the people around him was, I mean, it would have been so easy for him to be a stupid cartoony well, caricature that of a drunk. That is so often a caricature, yeah. And like, no, they made it raw and miserable and you saw the human person underneath the addiction all the time. And that's um, very hard to pull off. Yeah, and again, the chemistry between those two actors, anytime FP and Jughead are on the screen together, it's fucking electric. It is arresting, yeah. They do such a good goddamn job. So th- he's he's way up there, as is Fred Andrews. I love the character of Fred Andrews. He's good. He's good. The I'm so tired because I keep trying to be good and this town keeps failing me thing really works for me. Mm-hmm. And though it is super heavy-handed, the implicit, if not explicit, martyring of him at the end of season one was exactly what needed to happen with his character. Yeah. Uh, but the one good man does does work for me. I like that a lot. He's very compelling, the- and you get in the first episode, again, this sort of archetypal character that then turns on its head where he asks Archie, like, be confident enough in what you're going to do to not need to hide it. Yeah. Like, it goes from being completely paternalistic to being very emotionally supportive and real. And yeah, in that moment, that was the beginning of my love affair with how this character is written and acted. And then, I mean, he keeps saying fuck you to the man upstairs, like, to the big wigs and the fat cats. Oh yeah, constant double deuces as he backs out of the doorway. Like, so good. And the other honorable mention, this is going to be the one that's controversial, goes to Cheryl Blossom. I'm actually inclined to agree. She, they develop her, her character very, very well, and they give you enough context for the household that she grew up in that the fact mm-hmm. that she's kind of vicious and doesn't know how to reach out for support or to be supportive makes sense. And is terrified of showing a shred of weakness. Right, and you can see her growing into vulnerabilities. Like, her arc Absolutely. is about learning how to treat other people with empathy and affection without needing to have your walls up even if and she learning hasn't... that there are some people out there who can and will be good to you right which is something she did not learn at home exactly she hasn't quite like landed at that final destination yet but i mean and she she got the worst character break in episode 10 but we the less said about that the absolutely better. i i agree she's very but, compelling yeah That archetype of the person who starts out just kind of like, oh god, you're the worst, and learns to be human over the course of a season or so really works for me. For reference, one of my very favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters is Cordelia Chase. Okay. By far one of my favorite characters in that show. And she's the same character, basically, just in a different show, and they do a good job with it, and so of course it, it hits me. Right. And for me to pull back into the anime well, it's the... 
Vegeta or the Piccolo character arc. Absolutely. She's totally Vegeta. Oh, yeah, Cheryl Blossom is the Vegeta of Riverdale. Oh, boy. And, like, that's weird because Archie is Goku. Uh-huh. So I guess we're going to get a lot of fan fiction about them. Well, we probably already have that, whatever. Please, I mean, are you telling me that you don't think that Cheryl Blossom has a bad man t-shirt? <laughs> she probably does. <laughs> but who is post-boy? That's probably Jughead. Jughead's probably post-boy, yeah. J- Jughead is Piccolo. Archie is Goku. I mean, he's even got We're- the illusion of, like, that crown, like, the, the purple orb. Oh, shit! With the crown. <laughs> the visual symmetry is there. Oh, God, what? Why are we doing this now, Quinn? Um, we have to. We have to. We stop, have to wrap think, up. But, we have to get out. But yeah, uh, there's some fucking good characters. I think the only major point of divergence between us is that I think I like Veronica less than you do. That's fair. I don't dislike her, but her her Sorkin pool. I'm breaking the fourth wall. I do pop culture references thing wore off for me faster than I thought it would, and. What you're left with besides that gimmick is a good character, mm-hmm. but I would not argue rising necessarily to the levels of some of the others. That's fair. Still solidly, like, above average for like the show. Like a B-tier character? I would say, yeah. Like, she was my favorite character in the first few episodes, mm-hmm. like, hands down. But I think that others grew more consistently. I mean, she grew like hell in the episode where she had to come to terms with the fact that her father was evil. Mm-hmm. That was an amazing character arc for her. But... This show was nothing but character growth for Jughead and Cheryl. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is about like FP and Fred, but like they arrived fully formed with me absolutely like being on their side and like rooting for them. I can absolutely see that. It's probably the class struggle stuff because that gets Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I feel you. And I guess there were just elements of Veronica's character arc and journey that resonated with me a little bit more cleanly. But I also see how there's elements of that that might not be super compelling, especially because her whole too cool for school metatextual awareness does wear off at a certain point. I mean, she'd be my favorite character in the show if that shtick had not been done to death since its inception, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think looking at the, looking at this first season, it's, it's, clear winners are the joneses yeah <laughs> like for for river dues and river don'ts and i guess we're gonna reckoning. have to see if in season two the rest of the cast can keep up with them or what they please what they do to our characters when the showrunner's not writing the show uh-huh <sighs> but we will be seeing that at some point mm-hmm. in river dues and river don'ts season two look forward to it everyone i know i am i am too thank you for listening 